Okay, so what I want to do today uh, is I want to start by um, by going back to the big picture uh, just a little bit, and then we're going to move uh, move forward to finishing the section we started last week, and then we'll actually get into uh, I hope this week we'll get into Rishonin, um, but I want to just a yeah, big picture structurally we still haven't seen the structure of the entire sugya, so we probably have this week and next week of introduction yet, and then we'll go back to the beginning of the sugya and do it thoroughly. Um, but I want to make sure that we have all the questions we have, and hopefully we'll start this week getting a sense of how the questions we've asked will enable us to ask questions and see things in Rishonim that we would not have seen without starting this way. So here's the, the, the major thing, the major big picture we're talking about now is this. The Gemara starts off with the Mishnah, and the Gemara, immediate, the Gemara immediately rejects the possibility the Mishnah is talking about Chazara. It says it has to be talking about, wait, what it says, that means not Chazara. Then it says, if we're talking about Taos, right, and not Chazara, then we have to be talking about, uh, about indirect relationships between employer and employee. It can't be a direct relationship. It has to be Atu Polim Ha'adadi. Okay, then the Gemara says, for reasons we can try to figure out, that it can't be an, a, um, an equivalent relationship among the workers who are tricking each other. It has to be a hierarchical relationship. Okay, then the Gemara says that Granted, so granted we've set up this big, this big idea, right, that the Mishnah is actually talking about a case where there's an employer and an agent and the workers, and the employer and the, and the agent is tricking the, empl the employees. Gemara says, now which way is the agent tricking the employees? Is he over-promising or under-promising? So Gemara first raises the possibility that he's under-promising. The employer actually, actually said, I'll pay four, and he, says, I'll, and he says he only offers three. And the Gemara rejects it out of hand. In such a case, not only would there be no liability to the employee, there would not even be grounds for the employee who, right, who was under-promised, would not even be grounds for taromet because Savar Bekiba. Then, at the end of the Gemara, the Gemara says, nope, that's not actually, right, that's not actually true. We, we can say that there's grounds for taromet because, um, because there's, there's this verse in, in Mishle, so what I tried to argue was like, so what, what, what is the content of that shift? Like, why did we first say Sabar Vikibil and that's it? And then we say Al What changes between what we'll call for now a Havamida and a Maskana? Okay, it's not necessarily Havamida and Maskana. We don't know which we don't necessarily know which way the Gemara concludes. We have to figure out which way, if we have a series of Ibois Amos, how they relate to each other, all sorts of big questions about whether it's but for now. Right? It's true that earlier in the sugya the Gemara says Savar Vikibel and that's absolute. Later in the sugya the Gemara says it's not Savar Vikibel. Uh, Savar Vikibel isn't enough to prevent Taromet because you can say Altimna Tuvmi Balav. So what I tried to argue was that the position that Savar Vikibel is enough is the freedom of contract position. Right? Why was that right? As long as I agree to a contract, then any claim that there's a weakness in a contract that I agree to is actually a violation of my autonomy. Right? That's how, in the American constitutional tradition, freedom of contract was framed as that to prevent you from engage, for, to prevent you from being able to contract whatever you want is a limitation on your autonomy, and therefore violates the um, right the American libertarian spirit, uh, or the Australian libertarian spirit, I don't know. <laughs> whichever whichever libertarian spirit you you know you. Uh, you have, which, uh, your tradition is right is is what is associated with. Um, 
And that being said, so then I argued that so the so the maskana involves more of right, less of an absolute commitment to that because we can claim something went wrong, even though there was a right, even though there was a free agreement. Okay, so I just want to be clear that you know that's a that's a useful rhetorical device which right to set these up as poles, but it's not necessarily the case that um, right we've pointed out you know similar to me Balov could still be on the freedom of contract side because we ch we choose not to intervene even though we acknowledge it was wrong so it could be that we take the right we stay on that side you know we still think legally the result is freedom of contract just we acknowledge that there's some kind of moral you know sometimes freedom of contract can lead somebody's behaving badly even though the law should not acknowledge freedom of contract okay this is if you read uh, the late uh, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine's economic works, you'll see that that's a position that he is frequently ends up with, is that the law is kind of Milton Friedman, that halacha imposes certain kinds of moral obligations, but doesn't enforce them. But halacha has this moral overlay on, uh, on, free market, on total free market economics. That's one side of it. And we can decide if that's enough for, that's enough for us or not. The other side of it is, to say, you know, to say that we believe in freedom of contract, doesn't mean that we believe in absolute, doesn't necessarily mean, and in this case certainly doesn't mean that we believe in absolute freedom of contract. Right? There are always restrictions on what kind of contracts you could agree with. The only question is what they are. So we have, as you noted, that we have a concept of ONA that limits freedom of contract, it seems in some ways, in, um, in, some, in some kinds of commercial contract, um, contracts. But we could conceptually evade that by saying that ONA, right, claims of, of price gouging, Issues like that are always a function of lack of information on one side. I don't know, right? Because you can always stipulate or not. Right? If you say, I acknowledge that this is overpriced, but I will pay it to you anyway, that's not enough. But even if you eliminate enough, there is an easy example of a contract that Halakha refuses to enforce, which is ribbits. Right? We, don't allow we don't allow contracts for interest, for interest among Jews. Okay, if you want to distinguish labor from other areas and say freedom of contract for labor is not the same thing as freedom of contract for stuff, which is a very reasonable position, we can say, but you know, we don't know that halacha allows you to enter into contracts to injure yourself. Right, that's a controversy. Right? Does halacha allow? Right? Does halacha say, right, I will let you punch me in the nose right, in exchange for five hundred dollars? Right, that's a machlok in the Gemara Bavakama. To say that we don't allow freedom of contract to the extent of injuring of injuring you. May not be the same. May not really, you know. It's still, a, it's still a freedom of contract position. It could be that we could say, in fact, you can contract freely whatever you want. Just the other person is not allowed to punch you, right? So you can't contract in a way which causes the other person to violate a sin. It's not, a, it's not actually a restriction on what you can contract on. It's a restriction on the other party, right? There are ways in which we could conceptualize it so we would still leave ourselves with a theoretically absolute freedom of contract, but which, but it runs into other values. And sometimes the values over, override it. Right, so I wanted to, to be clear that, not, you know, that I'm setting the position up as extremes, but you can modify both extremes. And you can modify them towards each other. So you're not going to make a... I'll risk it, right? This, right we're a small shear tonight, so I, tell me if you follow this. Right? This is going to be... This is a much more radical claim about Gemara generally. But we'll see if you buy into it. Gemara is often uh, structured, I would say, in this kind of like V-shape, where you start off with two points that look really, really far apart, that's your original machloket, and you end up with the two points being brought almost entirely to each other. The easy example of this is a sugya that most of you are probably familiar with, which is the Yehosh Shalomidat sugya. 
right? Whether you, whether whether right, can you abandon things and right and therefore lose title to lost property, even if right. So the way it's usually set up is we right when we, and I've been trying to teach elementary and high school teachers not to do it that way for a while, <laughs> without much success. The way we usually set it up is well, if there's an absolute position, right? That one party says you have to know that it was lost and say Wow, right? Right, that's one party's position. That's right. In order to have yesh, anything short of that is not yesh. That's a bayah. And then Rava says, no, have yesh. Right, you don't have to know about it either. But the truth is, at the end of the sugya, the Gemara has to claim that there's a Hakasuv, which is the only which present which gen- generates the only case in which they disagree. Right, that's the, the arc of the sugya. If you right, it's ruined. To some extent, because there's an explanatory gloss that previews the sugi at the beginning, and so you don't get to see the elegance of the structure often because there's this gloss that gets put in, which may or may not be original. Um, but the basic arc of the sugi is so, yes, yeah, so at the very beginning, we think that Abaye thinks that the only case of Yeush is you see somebody saying, Oh my goodness, I lost, I lost my watch. I abandoned all hope of ever getting it. And Rabbi says, No, right? Rabbi says, yeah, uh, Rabbi says they don't have to know about it at all. So that's very cool. Actually, but really, the problem is each of them has to ad- has to address a long line of precedents. Some of which say you can keep objects, and some which say you can't keep objects. Right? For example, there's a Mishnah. Right? The Mishnah says Elo Mesiyah All of those cases, almost all of those cases, are not understandable as cases where we actually hear the person say. In almost all cases where you find an object without the owner being present. So really, the machloket really is that the way it works out is there's a difference between presumptive yeush and constructive yeush. Presumptive yeush is I can assume that you knew about it and I can assume that if you knew about it, that once you knew about it, you gave up hope. I don't actually have to see you know about it. For example, Gemara says, like, I can assume that you, I can assume that that um, that you know you lost your wallet because people peel their pockets all the time. So if I find money, if, if I find a, right, if I find a wallet and it doesn't have a seam on it, right? So right, so that I can right, so I can assume you know about it, even though I never heard you say anything. And I don't actually have to right. If I don't, if I didn't even hear you know you lost it. Obviously, I didn't hear you say that you gave up hope. But I can assume both those things. And right, and so that's a biased position is that it's that right that it's not yeush unless I can assume that you know you lost it, and I can assume that if you know you lost it, you um, right you gave up hope. Rava goes one step further, and Rava says not only that, I can even say that I even go so far as to say that if you knew you lost it, you would have given up hope. Right, so each of them allows you to keep an object even though nobody ever. Right? Nobody ever heard the person acknowledge the loss, let alone abandon hope. Right? That's not a machloket at all. The only machloket is, right, in this case, are we, right, in this case, can I, right, according to by I have to be able to assume that you know you lost it and that you would have given, and that once you know you lost it, of course you gave up hope. Um, right? Not I don't have to say anything, I just have to have the mental state. Um, right? That's first, right? Nobody thinks you have to have a, a statement, right? You just have to, right? We just, just have to have thought it. And Rabbi goes one step further and says, no, right, I, it's even okay if I can't, right, if I, if I know what you would have done had you known you lost it. Now, it's very hard to tell in any case like that whether we can presume it or not. Every case 
in front of you, you can come up with some rationale for saying that you know you lost it. It was heavy. It would have held. It, it would have. It would have the field. People check their pockets all the time. People know that fruit fall in the field, and so they. Right. That's that's like a really interesting test case, right? You know that a certain number of apples will have fallen from your tree, and therefore, right. Suddenly during the day, you know that twenty apples fell. You don't know which apples fell. You know that apples fell, and you give up. And you right. And you give up hope on all the apples that fall. Now, is that what we call constructive? You don't know which apples fell, or is that presumptive? You know that apples fall. Right, so that's an example of right, how, you, right, how you have what looks like a huge machloket, and we're, right, we teach it to you in sixth grade, usually we set it up as this huge machloket, and in reality, it's almost impossible to find an afkimina. Right, the Gemara ends up with an afkimina which is utterly unrelated to this issue, right, which is talking about zuto shoyam, because right, these are sarcastic, really. So by the same token, I can set up this, I can set up this, right, this huge debate, in terms of right, whether, whether Halakha believes in freedom of contract or whether Halakha believes in justice as opposed to freedom of contract. And it might be that that's a reasonable interpretation of the two poles, but in the end, each position is going to have to deal with a long line of precedent. And so it might be in the end that right, so the, and they all have to explain all of them, unless they align themselves with an earlier makhluk. Right, so just be aware right, that it looks like a broad makhluk can narrow again. And then, right, the really interesting thing is, along the cloak, you can, right, you can have an X-shaped sugyeth, so to speak, right, where you start off with them really far apart, then you realize there's a tradition they have to account for, but the tradition only deals with past cases. Now, a new case can arise, and that conceptual difference, right, that, that, led to, that, led, right, that, that we started with, can expand all the way out again. Because the new cases, there's no tradition to account for anymore. Right, we hit a point, right, where right, we accounted for all the past, and this case is still... Right, it's still equipoise, right? This case is still undecided, so now we can divide again. One person says, well, my, my tendency is towards freedom of contract. The other person says, well, no, my tendency is towards, is, right, is towards, is towards distributive justice. Right, so I just want to get right, how, the, how, these, right, how the relationship between the conceptual explanation of positions in a sugya and the legal outcome positions in a sugya can be very different in one way, and then the movement between the legal outcome of a sugya and the legal outcome Lamasa can be totally different, can, can, can go in the opposite direction again. Right? So, because right, otherwise you might think, what's the value of doing the conceptual, the broad conceptual distinction at the outset, right? All the end we need is this really narrow thing. But the answer is, right, that you, know, that you always have to explain all the past. But after you explain all the past, if you've explained all the past with different conceptual models, it might be that will have huge implications for the future. So right? So there's a point in setting out the model, even if the model can't actually be Right, you know, as as pure as it is in the sugya. Okay, was that? People follow that? Questions about that? Okay, very impressed. Everyone got that. <laughs> um, okay, so um, what we were talking about. So we moved right. So we're we're in that shift from Havamina to Maskana, where we're right, where we now say no, there is at least a moral limit to freedom of contract, which is called. Altimna Tobi Ba'alav, although again it may be a, it's a, it's a, maybe a moral commentary on it as opposed to a moral limit on it because it's not enforceable. And the question was, but you know, could be, what does it mean, Altimna Tobi Ba'alav? So all we know from the Gemara is that Altimna Tobi Ba'alav is, is, um, creates a taromit in a case where the agent, um, in a case where the agent um, under promises. Even though, right, it seems even though they agree. That's all we know. Um, 
And we know that the Havamina seems to have been that there isn't even a Taromid, as opposed to the Havamina being that there would be more than a Taromid. Right? Anytime you end up with a Taromid, you have to ask what, what the Havamina was. But here in the structure of the Sugya, it's clear what the Havamina is. Okay, so then we looked, so we said, okay, what El-Tinatobi means? So we use the hook, which is that Rashi says, Pasu Kubimishle. And what is Pasu Kubimishle, right? Why is Rashi telling us this? And the Rachmanim, who said that Pasu Kubimishle means other, right, other, he's, Rashi is telling you it's not, right, that this is, um, that you might otherwise think this was too, it had too much authority as a Lachlan Moshe I know it's only a Pasu. Yedidia, I think, argued pretty applied that you might think, no, this right, that it's, that it's, that it's, um, you might, you might think that it's not strong enough. So we're saying, no, it's a Pasu. But it turned out that um, the question wasn't such a great question, because Rashi says Pasuku all over Shas. Um, and that it's sort of, right, and we, we, we thought about it, we realized we couldn't really find a way to connect the Pasuk to the case. Because Altina Tobi Balim, here we're talking about Altina Tobi Polim, not Balim. And we had an underlying issue, which is this is a zero sum game. Right, right. Whatever, you, right, whatever one person pays, the other, right, the other person gets. Right, right. So how can you call this altim natov? Right, the zero sum game. And we looked at the sugiim babakama, and the point of the sugiim, right, the sugiim babakama use altim bala for people who don't allow other people into their fields, even when there's no damage to be done. So that's the case of zen nev zelochaser. Right, it's not a zero sum game. So it doesn't seem as if that, as if that case in babakama, sheds any real light on our case. Unless we're going to somehow claim that the original owner doesn't lose anything because he agreed anyway, right? which is a little bit, which is a little bit of a challenge. Okay, um, I have two. I can't. If you didn't bring this. Um, okay. Great. Jesse has one question. Yeah. You can give him a staple version if you want. Okay. So. Um, Okay, so this point, right, and we had a, a, a really odd, the Gemara Mavakama uses a different principle, which is miyot tov al tikra ra, whatever those words mean, I don't even know what, what tikra means, I don't know what miyot means, I, I confess, I, I utterly failed to translate it. Uh, the Gemara said, right, the, and it quotes it as if it's a Pasuk, the Gemara says, that's a Pasuk? No, it's not a Pasuk, this is a Pasuk. What kind of weird thing is that? Uh, right, that's a, like a completely strange, completely strange uh, framing. Okay, so that's where we where we were um, last week. Um, so what I gave you, what I, what I gave you, um, we're now on page five in the Mekorah. Um, so what I gave you were a bunch of other um, places where this language, uh, right, is framed. I talked about, right, I showed how, how the, right, how the uh, Daffel Daff tries to connect the Sugi Mavakama, and maybe that works, maybe that, that doesn't. Um, the al Shimoni quotes, um, Quotes the two sugya together, but it doesn't prove anything because it's just organizing, right? it's just functioning as like a Torah Tamim, I think. All the all the, the stuff in Chazal on that pasuk, al Tim Natovni Balav. Meiri says the following. Right, so Meiri starts off by saying that this is a Zenanev Zelochasir situation. Right, pretty clearly. And he quotes the Gemara Babakama. Now here's what he says. Right? If you look at the Miri on page five, the last two lines, he says, Right? 
So he reframes the Gemara Babakama as saying that there's a Pasuk, and then there's a Chazal based on the Pasuk. Right? So we don't know from the Gemara Babakama who said Miyot Tov We just know that right, they claim it was a Pasuk, and it's not. The Miri says it's not just that they, that they, um, that they claim that you know, that, that really should have been that Pasuk. There's really a rabbinic statement, Miyot If you look at Baruch HaSvardi, um, he leaves out the whole Miyot He just says, He just quotes the Pasuk. Uh, if you look at the Otsar Midrashim, whatever those Midrashim are, um, right, these are this collection of various Midrashim of whatever dates, and you can look them up yourself and see how convincing the scholarship is. And where they're really from, but somebody said, This is a statement of the Rab, of Rabbo Okay, so we have a, a claim that there are really two separate strands. There's the there's the pasuk, and there's the and there's the rabbinic statement. Okay, there's a sheet of Macbeth that I quoted just for, just to realize that he says, the nikra ra. So the nikra ra is an interesting, you know, that we move from, we, right, we move from a taromet to nikra ra, so that starts intensifying it. But for now, the really interesting is he says, frames it again as, right? The So we could say that the agent, right, even though somebody is chaser, but the agent is still called maneat tov because the agent is not the one who loses. We could say that. Still a little bit of a stretch. Okay. Turning the, uh, turning the page to page six, we have a Gemara in Brachos. And Brachos talks right, about the, uh, right, how do you pray this? Rav Chista says you pray it while mi'umad, which means um, while standing still, not just standing, standing still. And Rav Shesha says, even while you're walking. Rav Chista and Rav Sheshis have a Ka'azli Burtas, and Rav Chista and Rav Sheshis are walking on the way. Come Rav Chista v'kamatzli. Amalei Rav Sheshis l'shamais, Rav Sheshis is blind, and he says to his shamash, what is Rav Chista doing? Amalei kayu matzli. He said, he's praying. He said, Amalei ukma namal didi v'atzli. So I'll pray too, standing. Miyot tov al Okay, so... Yotelatikarah is not talking about one person, right? It's not talking about one person benefiting another person losing at all. Right? This is talking about an individual person, right? Doing this is talking about doing the best thing or not doing the best thing. Right? It sounds like it, right, it sounds like an entirely different principle, unrelated to anything we have said previously. Right, Rashi says, since I can right, since I can pray standing still. Because my my caravan is my caravan is uh, is stopping. Uh, right. So it sounds like don't do the beevid, right? Don't do the beevid when it's um, when it, when it, right when it's uh, when it's lachatchila. So that principle doesn't seem to do anything to do with anything at all. Right, look, Rabbi Nisim going the end is the only one I care about. He says my tarsinan in ksiv kihai gavna. There's something, right, there's something sort of like it in the Pasuk. What does all this mean together? So I'm going to just propose a, you know, a straightforward thesis, which is that um, Arsuga never mentions Miyot Tov right? 
The Yotelotukarach is a rabbinic statement that uses the Pasuk as an Asmachta. There's no reason to assume that when we quote the Pasuk directly that we mean the rabbinic statement. When we quote the rabbinic statement, we intend whatever their interpretation of the Pasuk is as an Asmachta. But when we quote the Pasuk, there's no reason to assume we mean the rabbinic statement. Right? Because right? it's an Asmachta. It's not what the Pasuk really means. Right? They just has it, found a way to stick it on. And if that's the case, since our sugya never mentions the rabbinic statement, there's no reason to assume that these are connected at all. Because right? the other two sugya both mention miyotov, and our sugya doesn't. Right? So I want to argue that, in fact, right, that the attempt to construct a consistent meaning of altimna tov mi balav to bavakama, which uses the, pas- the pasuk but only in place of the rabbinic statement, and to brachos, which uses the rabbinic statement without the pasuk, is an error. And we are left with we are left with a pasuk that is um, that we, it has to be defined solely by its context and its meaning here. If I wanted to be really fancy, I could say, and that's why Rashi says pasuk initially. So you shouldn't think that he, that it means rabbinic <laughs> statement, right? It just right, it, right. He thinks you should understand right. You should understand it as a pasuk, as opposed to its rabbinic meaning. I don't know that I'm convinced by that at all, uh, but in a certain universe of discourse, that would certainly be a, you know be a contribution. Okay. So what we've done is we've essentially eliminated the evidence, and we still have no idea what alternative midbalav means, because we don't have a right. My best explanation of pasuk of Mishle says that this is no evidence. Right, the whole point of it is to say that there are no other contexts which give us any evidence at all. Okay, so Professor Yaakov Elman used to constantly say to me, "A negative result is also a result," uh, because I get frustrated because I would often. Right, do the research for a paper and turn out saying I can't prove anything. Uh, one of the less successful shirim of my life was a shirim that I gave the year I was in Israel called "Why I Don't Know, Why I don't know Pshat in This Year Shalmi, But I Can Prove to You That No One Else Has Either." <laughs> <laughs> it turned out people weren't so interested in knowing that the text was incomprehensible. Uh, I had two friends, Baruch Hashem, who believed that it was a very important shir, even though they didn't think anybody, anyone else should have to go to it. So they took turns. <laughs> they thought it was important that I give the shear. <laughs> we'll try to do better here. But sometimes the, sometimes the negative result is a result. And this case opens up the field, right? We have, we have space to try and figure out what Altimna Tov Mibalov means uh, on our own. Okay, so now, with that, we can now turn to uh, Rishon and Fine. Okay, let's take a look. Let's take a look at the, at the riff to start with. Uh, proviso again that we're looking, we're not looking at the whole riff, we're looking at my excerpt of the riff, so it might be that whatever we decide tonight will change if we looked at the, if we looked at the, at the riff's whole summary, summary of the entire sugit. So here's what the riff says, we're on top of page 7. The riff says, There's a rule that we take in this sugit, is what it sounds like, Okay, so the owner says four. And the shliach says three. Okay. So when the agent under promises, we, right, this is the beginning, this, this is the beginning of the sugya, right? This, or this is the, 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 the beginning of the last dokim, right? When the agent under promises, so, sorry, this is the Havamina, right? The agent under promises, and we say, Savar Vikavil. 
But then we're going to skip the next two lines. He says, Aval Islahu Alei Taromit. So we end up as the Maskan. Okay, right? So they're saying the outline of the Sugya is, right, the end of the Sugya is that the contract is binding legally, right? But there's a Taromit, which is the Maskan of the Sugya. Right? We're all clear on that? Right? This is the, right, in the case where the, where the agent under promises, but they agreed to accept what the agent promised, so they're severed the Kavil, so the contract is binding and right, enforceable on them, right? They can only work for three. But, and if they worked already, which is the case we're talking about, they work for, th- they work for three, but they have a term. But the interesting thing is that before that, the line beginning with the asterisk, right? The Rish says, the Afogav the Shavya Abitahu Dalid, Lo Shakli Ela Tlasa. Even though their work is worth four, they only get paid. They only get paid three. Why? The ozule kamosli gabe, because they lowered the price for him. Okay, right. So the right. So the rule, the rule about uh, the rule about contracts binding, right? As long as whatever they agree to is binding on them, absolutely. But I want to address. I want to go back to what we talked about last week in terms of structuring the sugya, right? So. Right, if you go back, right, if you go back to page, right to, um, right to page uh, um, three, is it? We're happy up page three. Yeah, right. So you'll see that um, clause, right, that e, right, condition e of the Gemara Zokimta is when, um, when, it, when the agent overpromises, is that there's some people who work for three and some people who work for four. And right, the question we're asking structurally is. Right, that condition that the Gemara placed on all its okimtas when the shliach overpromises, that they right, that there ha- it has to be possible for the right the, the 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 work of the employees cannot have a fixed value. Does that condition apply to the Gemara's okimta the reverse way when the shliach underpromises? So the Rif says no. Right, that condition was only put on the okimta for overpromising. Is not put on the Akimta for underpromising. Now that is right, that's already a Kiddush, because that tells you right he believes very, very strongly, right, the contract is binding, even though the contract ends up with the workers getting less than they right, less than their work is than they objectively earned. Right? Because right? the the price for their work, the fixed price is four. But they agreed to lower their price so they can work at less than going going wage. Even right, so that right, that's so that, that's a pretty strong position. Um, that's a pretty strong position, and it also right, but it also wasn't the question. He says there's a taromit. Maybe there's only a taromit because they objectively got paid less than they deserve. Right, what would happen? In a case where, in a case where some people get paid four and some people get paid three, and they got paid three, maybe the Rift would say there's no taromit in that case at all, because they don't know if they lost. The taromit is only because they negotiated from a position of um, information weakness, right? The person negotiating with them knew how far, right? Knew that, right? Knew that the that the owner had said four. And was not transparent with them about that. So there is an information asymmetry. But uh, right. But if it turns right. But objectively, right. Uh, right. In ordinary in an ordinary negotiation, actually, actually I don't even want to frame it. In ordinary negotiation, that's what happens, right? You get paid less than the other person. That's right. In ordinary, right. 
there's a, there's an arb there's always an arbitrage, right? Unless, except in a in a perfectly efficient market, I guess, right? See what 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 um, what one person is willing to pay and the other person is willing to sell for. Right? We know that, right? We don't assume that, yeah, right? We have, that's what bargaining is. Do we think there's a tournament? Whenever one per right, whenever you don't get exactly what the other person, exactly the other person's best price. If that's the case, then there's a tournament after almost every negotiation. Right, so I think what the riff is saying, that can't be. It can't be the tournament just because you lost the negotiation. Well, the reason there's a tournament is that you lost objectively. Right, you gave him something, right, the employee gave the employer something that was worth four and gave it to them for three. Now, they agreed. But that's what a tournament is only if you lost something. Yes, Alicia? But then, um, if the balabites are three, and and the, the agents are three, and the work is really worth four, would you say there's tromity as well? Um, or uh, not, because who do they have a tromity against if there is nobody, they only have a tromity if, right, if there's some way in which they could say right. if we had so known. It's, so it's, but then it seems like it's about that dis disparity, not the... the, the um, yeah, there has to be someone to blame for the disparity. I think, right? The Roman has to be against somebody. Right? So they have to have lost something, and they have to be able to complain about it to somebody other than God. Right? I think that, but, does that make sense? They're complaining about not the fact that they, they paid for more, that their work was more was worth more than they were paid for, but the fact that the Barabite actually offered it was going to pay them what their work was, was worth. Uh, yes, I think it's right. You, you, you're, I think you're right that there's a thread there, and I'm not formulating it precisely enough. Um, there are two conditions we need, right? Let's run with that much we can say, right? We need somebody to have, right? We need there to have been a deception on the part of the agent. And we need there to have, and I want to argue that you also need there to have been that they actually lost something, right? If deception on the part of the agent that merely throws them into the pool of people who are paid ordinarily, according to the riff, I'm arguing, would not have been enough. So why not? So I'm like, why not? Because they didn't actually lose anything. So you need both conditions, right? You need, right? You need them to have actually lost something objectively. Now, losing something objectively is not enough because you can, in fact, right? You can, in fact, you know, we have freedom of contract. You're allowed, you're allowed to undercut the market. That, yes. When you say losing something objectively, you mean because they lowered their price, the price that they were. They lowered their price and they did the work, right? I'm assuming this whole conversation <coughs> takes place after they did the work, right? So that, right? So the. So I guess the fair question is, you know what, maybe it's even a better, better way of framing it. Maybe it's just a little forced. I think it's a better way of saying it. The Torahmet is not because they lost something. The Torahmet is because they gave somebody else something for which he didn't pay them. Right? It's a better way of framing it. Rather than their loss, it's that, right, it's that the other party, right, is that they have a Torahmet, and that'll feel better to Altimna told me right? It's not that they lost something. It's that, look, we gave you four shkalim, right? Why are you denying us, right? Why are you denying us the, right, the, that fourth shekel, which we gave you? And I think and the, the problem here is that the person who benefits is the owner and the person who made the, right, who's, who made the promise is the agent. And we don't know how the, how the gap um, works. Although the Pusik reads kind of weird now. Yes, well, the, the Pusik and Balim and Polim is always going to be is always going to be very problematic. Uh, and I, I don't know that I have quite answered Alicia's question properly. Yeah, I'm just still not yeah. convinced that the yeah. ability to, to, to complain is dependent on the fact that their work was worth more than they got. 
Yeah. And he's saying, Afal Gav, that they work with, 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 with more, they still only get three. But even, even if they, their work was worth three and they got three, they could still complain because Balotelli was going to give them, had offered four, and the, and the owner and the agent didn't. Okay, so let's, let's write, but the, the riff says, right, without, in the, right, but the riff says something which is not in the Gemara, right? And that's the, the mode of analysis, right? It's basically, right? So I'm trying to convey, which we'll shown him is look at where they're quoting the Gemara, and when they add things that aren't in the Gemara, right, so you have to say, why are they adding this? So what the Rift does is he puts in a condition of the Okimta which does not belong, which is not in the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't say anything about, right, in this case, about what the work is actually worth. The Rift says the work, the work actually has to be worth, uh, has to be worth four. So what does he put that in for, right? Uh, does he put it in to explain why they have a Taromet? Right, what, right, or does he put it in to, right, so, sorry, so sub, he could be saying Savarvikavil, even no matter, right, and it's Savarvikavil, no matter how radical it is, we always accept, we always accept contract. That's one side of the equation, right? And the other possibility is saying, no, what he's, say, he's not doing, that's <coughs> obvious. What he's saying to us is, right, is this explains why there's a Taromet, right? So the purpose of Kimta, to, right, which, which, which part of these, of, of the, is explaining why, is he explaining how far Savar Rekavil goes or why there's a tournament? Really not how far Savar Rekavil doesn't go. Or both. Right? So that, 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 that I think is the issue in, is, is the issue in the rift, right? Which way, which way is he setting out? I tried to read it as both. Right? That on the one hand he's saying it's Savar Rekavil and Savar Rekavil works even when the price, even when they're, right, they're being paid below the market price because workers are allowed to agree to work below the market price. But he says, you know, but he says that if they agree to work below the market price and there's some kind of information denied to them, so then they have a tarum. But if they agree to work at one of the at the market price, then they have no right. I wanted to argue they have no anything. At least you want to argue, no, maybe not. Right? Maybe that maybe that's right, since literally he puts that condition in before he says well, tarumet, not after. Right? So maybe it maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe they have a tarumet even in the other in the other case. Okay, I'm open to both those possibilities. Okay, the Rift doesn't add anything about, right, you know, about, right, but what the Timna Tov is. Okay, right, that just replaces the condition of the case. So the only, right, so I guess what I'm claiming, right, if you read it my way, then we have gained information about what, it, what Al-Timna Tov Mibalov means and what, and what, and what a, a Taromit is. And if we don't read it my way, then we still have no information at all. But negative results also result. Right? <laughs> so that does not uh, that does not prove my point at all. Okay. Rabbi Yonatan Lunil, one of the commentators on the, on the riff, um, says the following: Yeshlem tar omed olav, delet le lahay poel al tim natov mi balav biyod el yochalasot. So they have a complaint against the agent, right? He makes it very clear that it's the agent they have a complaint against and not the owner. And then he says, "Vehu chas al osher balabayit shlo yichaser." So this is like a right, this is like pretty straightforward. Rizal says the right Altima Tomi Balav means when you deprive the poor of getting money of an opportunity to get money from the rich. Right, that's what their complaint is. That's a pretty right, that's a pretty strong statement, right? That implies that uh, right, his position is that we have a bias. We right. We want workers to get paid everything that they right. Everything that the owner would be willing to pay. In our ideal situation, 
right, we would right, what we would do is we would um, we would find out exactly what the owner is willing to pay, and then we would give that information to the workers so they would refuse to work until then. Right, we would be we would be a uh, what's it a um, a partial mediator, right, as opposed to an impartial mediator. Uh, right, so that's a that's a very right. So very really this seems to be saying a very radical claim, right? That uh, that right that our willingness to allow the price to be set by the market is a concession to economic reality, right? Maybe the, maybe because otherwise right the employers won't participate. Maybe because otherwise we have no way of knowing what the work is actually worth. But really, our ideal model is all the money should go from the employer to, from the employer to the employee, as long as the employees are poor. Which is our assumption, and so this agent did the wrong thing because he cares about the money for the rich instead of the money of the poor. Okay, right. I think that that's a that's an enjoyably radical, uh, enjoyably radical statement. If anybody has written a biography of Yonatan Mikhailov, which talks about how he spent many years in, as a manual labor uh, without a union before this happened, that would be great. It, there's no evidence for it whatsoever, uh, but you can write a historical novel if you want. Right? There are there are there are classically Jewish historical novels that are written uh, off less evidence. Uh, particularly, I think the the the, uh, the, the wonderful I enjoyed the, the novels of Marcus Lehman, uh, which are, if you haven't heard of them, they're these nineteenth-century um, Orthodox romances, uh, which were explicitly written to compete with secular literature that was you know, steering kids off the derrick. Uh, they're very interesting to read now, <laughs> um, but they're like based you know like their whole biography is built of typos and <laughs> things like that. You can't you can't trust the biography of any dramatic figures that appear there, but they're very cool. Uh, you know, don't think of Achronim often as these romantic heroes. Uh, and it usually begins like you know, there's this princess who's tutored by the yeshiva student, <laughs> and he has influence on her, and she wants to convert, but her father will kill her, so they run off together. <laughs> they're separated by the high seas, and they're captured by pirates. <laughs> I'm melding a few together. Um, okay, they're fun. They're a lot of fun. Feldheim put out translations of them many years ago. Um, okay, the Ritva says the following: Let lechaltim lebalaf perish. The lack of the main mer lagabe balabayit ikimishem altim atuv mibalav imaya maskir barba holamotzi begimel. Right. So he says the reverse question. Hang on a sec. Right. For, right. Forget just the money. Right. What? Why shouldn't the owner make the rever- exact claim against against the agent if he over if he pays more than the right? There. In the end, we know they're willing to work for three. Right, so if Altina Tilmi Balo should work in reverse. <coughs> that right now, right, that if, if they, right, if it's three and a half, so then both of them could complain against the agent. Because right, right, neither of them gets everything they could. So what, it says, what sense does it make, says the Ritva, to raise this question in a zero-sum game? Okay, now asking this question, he obviously doesn't accept Rabbi Yonason and Carol O'Neill's issue that we favor the rich. So his answer is as following. <laughs> The cave in the Balabayas Amarlo Beferish Arba, Lo Amarlo Shiskor Kafi Mashiuchal, Gali Adate, the Nichaluhu Litain Luhu Arba. Here's a question where it's his statement that, right, since he says that he, I'd really, I'm perfectly happy to pay for it. So, right, so that's why the, that's why the, the, the laborers have an, have an argument against the workers. Whereas, if the labor, if he, if he had ended up paying the laborers more than that, he would not have had an explicit statement by the workers. All right, so it's the explicit statement that he knows it. So I have to say, like this, you know, very nice, but really it takes like all the fun out of it. 
because all the moral because it means you, all that matters is what he said. Right? If the agents, if, if the owner in fact said, if the owner in fact said, I'll pay up to four, but get me what you can, then there's no, there's no, there's no. Right. So the case is then a, a complete, you know, is a complete abstraction. Right. You know, like like almost a fantasy. Right. You know, where where a where an, where an owner says says pay that as opposed to pay up to that. And how often is that gonna? Right, how, how often is that? How often is that gonna happen? You could ask me. Maybe it does. And and when he does say that, does he mean that? How are we gonna know what the right? How do we know what the owner means? Usually, when you say pay for, you mean pay up to for. And if the owner really wanted to pay for, he could right, he don't, let the owner pay. Now, obviously, he's not happier paying four than three, because he right because he's not paying it now. So I have to say that. Um, I understand that the Ritva is the Ritva is not enthused by the alternative, which is to say that we favor the rich over the poor, right? Because he, we have Sukkim about that, right? Right? Let's say Dar Dal Berivo. The law is supposed to be impartial. So we can say that you know what? The law is supposed to be impartial, but the Torah isn't. And that's perfectly fine with us, right? To say that the law Right, that what we say, we say what we say the law is is fine, but we say right, but but what we think is the moral claim is a is a totally different gamut of thing. Okay, so that's right. So we have a machlokus between the rich and Abiyanus that I think is really um, really a big deal. I figured out which way, but the problem is that the you know, the uh, the is hard to fit in the whole structure of halacha. I think in some ways. And the Ritva is hard to, right? The Ritva doesn't seem to give the, the Gemara all the meaning it could, and does, also doesn't seem like is it really true Goliadate? Really, I don't know. Right? That that you know it seems to me, it seems to me like it's it's a little bit of a push. Okay, so the Meiri says the following: The Afluschliach ain't lo klum al balabayis. There he says, but right. So first he says maybe, right? Why shouldn't the agent be able to collect the extra dollar from the owners? And if the agent collected the extra dollar from the owners, then we could understand why the right, why the employees would have a taromit. Right, you're taking the money he would have given us. But the mayor says, no, he can't do that. Why? Right, that's what he's supposed to do. He did his job. Okay, he did his job, which means that we assume that whenever an owner tells you something, that that right that the, what he means is up to, which is very reasonable. So now the question is: So what's the tarumit? Right? Why did right? If he did his job, so what? Right? All this is is a lost negotiation. So here the Meiri says: Okay. So Meiri says, I think, right? What I was trying to say in the riff, uh, right? In the in the in the in the conversation with Elisha. What he says is the ground for their complaint is that the shliach negotiated them down from the market wage. Okay, that itself is a right. If we, when we frame it that way, right, which is dip, which is not right, is not either of the formulations that 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 I gave Alicia before. It's not about we lost something, and it's not about you got something without being paid for. It's about that right. It's about that you gave us lower. Than, right, if you think Mir is really saying that, right, I have to figure out the language. Is. I mean, he says, "Achar al shepichet b'schar achar shem lachesh Right. So they, 
the Tzaromet is, it seems, is that he lowered their salary even though the worth was worth more, was worth more. So he negotiated too well. How is that different from the riff? So we were talking about like what really, what, what is the complaint in the riff? So there's no mention here of the owner getting something, right? So that formulation doesn't work in him at all. Um, and right, he doesn't really frame it as we lost something, right? He frames it as who didn't give us as much as we should have gotten. It's not clear that their the, the ability to complain is, is, is based on the fact that they're being underpaid. They're, they're not being paid for what they, the worth of the they Yes. Paid, which it wasn't clear to me right. from the roof. Even though they agreed. You know, they raise, so this is a really interesting, right? So this, this I think, you know, moves us really, right? This is, in a sense, this is a minimum wage case, right? Where, right, where people, right, this is, right, people freely negotiate to get paid, right? Right, the question was, could people, right, could minimum wages be enforced or were, or were they an infringement on freedom of contract? Right, that was, that was the issue the Supreme Court had to, ever had to deal with. And the answer is that you can't, right, that minimum wage can't be enforced because that would be that would be an, right, an infringement of freedom of contract. But if you right, you shouldn't be the kind of person who bargains people down below minimum wage. This isn't exactly minimum wage. This is not minimum wage. This is prevailing wage. That's correct. Uh, this is prevailing wage, right? So yeah, that's a whole question. But economically, how the minimum wage relates to prevailing wage. But in terms of the freedom of contract issue, so there's a right, there's a Right, there's a prevailing wage, and we agreed to less, so why should it ever be an issue? And right, the answer is, it's not an issue legally, but you should pay people a prevailing wage. Why? Because it's the right thing? Because right, you know, we could claim it in a much fancier version of what they really think is, right, you know, we have to get into a you know, sort of Marxist analysis, right? Does, when we say the worth is work for, worth, that their work is worth for, does that mean that the owner now has, for, actually has, for, right, have they added value to the tune of four to him? And that's what it is, right? Or is it really just prevail, or, you know, about, around prevailing wage? I don't want to impose any of that on halacha right now. Yes, Alicia? But, but then according to this theory, yeah. wouldn't you say that the workers can also complain even if the ballot yeah. bites has three? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. I think that... It, I think that um, it doesn't seem to fit in the circle right. so well. That's right. <laughs> right that, that, I think, is a very fair, is a very fair complaint. Um, yeah, you know, right. So we could we could claim the Miri's, you know, that Miri means uh, there also he also has to put in the other condition of the riff, uh, right? And probably my discussion with you pre pre previously was was influenced by the way the Miri is going to going to interpret the riff, right? So it could be we could interpret it that way. We could say, you know what, we have a kasha. Every position here has a right has a weakness, uh, right? The position of the Miri is that he do it doesn't explain why you don't have the same complaint against the owner. Uh, and yeah, it's a fair, right? That's a fair, um, the answer is, right? The answer, I guess, let's figure it out, right? The answer is the owner would never, right, if the owner had promised for, then he would have to pay for it. Right, that's the, right? So the owner, if, right, if the they, they agreed, but they agreed in an unfair negotiation because they didn't know what the other side was willing to pay. But, right, if the owner, so what if the owner actually just said, I'm only willing to pay three? Would they have a term? Yeah, I understand the problem. Still not there. Okay, excellent. Thank you.
Okay, so that brings us to the Talmud HaRashba. Um, I will just say, Talmud HaRashba exists on a couple of Masechtot. Um, and while everybody, you know, the academic world is quite sure this is a Talmud HaRashba, we obviously don't know his name. Uh, the, the free masters I've been giving out to people for years, but no one has taken it yet, is I, th- I suspect that it's actually a Talmud of the Meiri, which would be very important because it would be the only known Talmud of the Meiri uh, in history. Uh, I think this because the Meiri is famous or infamous for, uh, right, for referring to all his predecessors by nicknames as opposed to by name. Right, Rashi is Gadol HaMeforshim, the Ramam, right, the Ramam is Gadol HaMechabrim, I think. He never, right, he never quotes anybody by name. So far as I know, the only other commentary that uses that terminology is the Talmud HaRashba, Abba Um uh, So there, I think there's a desideratum, which maybe they've already done, for someone to compare the positions of the Talmud HaRashba to the Miri and see if maybe we have found a... Right, the, Miri, the Miri and the Rashba are contemporaries, so could have been a student of both. Right, they correspond, I think. Okay. Be that as it may. Let's see what he says here. Okay, so that's that's directly the riff. Right? You get three if you agree to three, even if that is a below market rate and everyone gets paid for. Uh, right, so far we haven't found anybody explicitly denying that. Right, so this is a question that Yedidia uh, asked me during the week. What about Ona? Right, shouldn't they be able to claim that the that the um, that the contract is reversible, and they're owed the extra money because after all they're being paid um, a fifth, right, less than a fifth. So I'm going to hold that question there. Like, to me, it's a you know okay. They picked the wrong example. If I said eight and seven, you wouldn't have to write this. Would the sugya change? Interesting claim, right? You know that four and three matters because it's right because it's within the boundaries of ana, right? Well, the one sixth boundary of ana, and eight and seven wouldn't be right. So it'll be a totally different sugya if it was four to three, and um, eight of seven. But he says no. Right? He says no. There's no right. He takes the claim from here that the whole category of ana doesn't exist for labor. Right. So that's an interesting question. Now, what do we think? Why does that? Right. Do we think that's true or not? Right. Why? What's the purpose of Ona? And we can resolve that technically by claiming that you know there's just exerus accustom as to where Ona applies and where it doesn't, or we could resolve it substantively by claiming that labor is not the kind of thing which is which is subject to Ona. Right. Figure out why. Okay. So he gets rid of Ona. Blood el afilu asim alachas sheshava arba ein lahel el shlosha shari kiblu alayin bekach. So now he adds in. Right, one of the okimtas that we that we mentioned above is what happens if they do work that's worth more. Right, they say we worked harder. Right, we we we, we worked better. That was an okimta in the in the um, in the overpromising case, and he imports it here, and says not only if everyone has worked for, even if right, even if there are there are there is a way of working that's worth three and a way of working that's worth four, so you work differently. Right, which means that you did something. Right, it's not that I agreed to three and I worked to three. I agreed to three, but I did the kind of work that's worth four. Nonetheless, you only get paid three. So that's a really interesting claim. Why should that be so? Why should that be so? Now it's now it's not the contract. Right, I agree. Right, I agreed. Right, I agreed. Right. So that's a really, that's a really. Um, so he's like, but you agreed to do three. Why did you work the four? Okay, right. So the answer is, if you do a better job than you're paid for, you don't get the claim. 
Okay. Um, interesting move. So here he takes the other position, right, in the, in the discussion he had with Alicia at the very beginning. He says there's only a taromet because there's an objective loss. Right, the fact that you lost an opportunity to get paid for Right, it's not enough to create a taromet. Right? There, there also has to be a substantive loss. Okay, so you have right, so you have all your options played out there, right, played out there in the Rishonim, right? We have the riff who's ambiguous. Right, the Miri who disambiguates that it's because right, that it's because of the loss, and the Tamarashko who disambiguates that it's because the loss is absolute and not just an opportunity loss. Now, are all these positions universal or are these positions right or the each of these Rishonim takes right takes a vision like that, I have to decide whether this is a an emerging consensus um, or not. Um, right? Against all of this tradition, you have the Yonatami Lunil, right, who says that the agent is not supposed to do whatever you can for the uh, right for the owner, right? And not the, the Ritva's way out that he's supposed to do whatever you can whatever you can for the owner only if the owner tells him he's supposed to do whatever you can, right? And Bernas Lunil says no he's supposed to favor the workers. Okay, so the last thing we'll do just to finish up today, so just in the um, in the 20th century, uh, Rav Yashiv comes along and says, right, Okay, right, so he said, right, so he said, if there's really a noach, right, we asked the, um, um, right, we, we asked, we asked the, we asked the wrong question, right, so he ends up saying that there can't be a here, but he thinks that there is a ritva somewhere who says that there actually is an issue of ona. Uh, right, he says this sugya challenges the claim that there can be a by, right, by, um, by the work, because if there could be a null by the work, then um, right, then the Gemara asked the wrong question. So there's a simple answer to that, which is we can interpret the sugya in a way in which there would be no ona. How can we do that? Seven tell of eight. Friend? Seven of eight. Yeah, but that's not an interpretation. Right? How could we how could we change the how could we understand the sugya? How can we read the sugya in such a way that uh, even if ona applies to labor, the only issue, the only thing they have here is a taromit. All we have to do is say that it's not a case where the work has objective value. It's a case where some people get paid three and some people get paid four. Now there can't be ona because there's no reg only applies if there's right if there's a market price. And right now we're home free. So it turns out that what all the Rishonim did by moving that Okimta, right, from the cases right from the from right from the cases of overpromising to the case of underpromising. Was they kept or not out of the sugya? Now we have to decide, right? Do we want to keep or not out of the sugya or not? Because right, keeping or not out of the sugya involves here a claim that there is no concept of or not by labor, and that's a big move, right? So that's what I wanted to show you, right? To show you that, right? Is that it looks like an innocent move? We're just moving the okimta, we're just moving the okimta from here to there. If you're asking, like, why do they do that? So I can reconstruct their thought process. 
And the thought process might be exactly this. Hang on a second, it's a case of four and three. That should be a no. Well, so we're, we'll get rid of it is by saying, right, uh, right, um, sorry, the other way around. What I'll say is that they, why did it, sorry, they moved this in here and in order to prevent, in order to, sorry, the other way around. They had to move this in here in order to, to show you that there's no no, right? That's what it have to be, right? Because by, by making the case that, they show you there's no no, because if there were a no, then they would have to change it to the, to the, the other way. Sorry, right? I think that's a, better, that's a better way of framing it. But if the Reviel Yashiv is right that there is a sugya, there, is, there are people who think there is no by labor, so then they're going to have to do one of two things. Either they're going to have to claim the numbers don't matter, which is cheating, mm-hmm. right? or they're going to have to say that right, we reject the Okimta of the Rif. Okay, so that's just a, a sense of what, of, um, of what, right, of what the, right, what, how, how the Rishonim will start, to, will start being put together. Um, so we have right, radical rad- positions. We have right, the most radical position we have is Rebbeinu Tamil who says that actually even agents of the owner are supposed to be biased towards the worker. Um, you have the halfway position, which says with the, the Ritva, who says that agents of the owner are supposed to be biased to the worker unless the owner tells them explicitly not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? You have the position of the Meiri and the Talmud Rashba, which says that no, right? Agents have a responsibility, right, have responsibility to the owner, and that can't be the complaint at all, um, right? That, right? That generate, right? The complaint has to be, um, which, which, I, right? Which is that they got paid less than the shar, which we then point out, but that sounds like ona, right? So that leaves us two options, right? I, right? Either we reject ona, or we decide that the right that 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 uh, came to. That Okimta is not correct, right? So it could be in the end, right? The position we move towards is that what Tarome is is the shadow of Ona. And as there, there is no Ona by labor, but the concept of Ona remains. And so Tarome is, is, is the, as in the outcome in a labor case of what would be grounds for breaching the contract for a claim, for a claim that the contract was invalid in a commercial case. Okay, so right, that 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 right, that would be the the big the biggest conceptual claim. I'm not going to claim that's necessarily true, but I want to but I want to put it out there. Rabbi Yashiv claimed there's a machloket rishonim that whether or not applies to labor. We will see that uh, next week, uh, right? So once we, cl- we admit that there's a no, there's no labor, right, we'll have to figure out uh, what we want to do with it. Okay, questions? All I think. It, it, yes. I guess yeah. the one thing that, that's troubling me is the distinction of of this being a concrete loss, right? Like, yeah. Like for Onato, so you're saying that for Onato apply, this has to be a concrete loss where for sure everybody knows that they should have made $4, right? The market value of their labor is $4 and they're yeah. willing to take three. And so there's a clear... Yeah, I know there has to be a set price. Right? I know is, the, right, is defined as, right, as under overcharging relative to the market. Right, I'm going to be very careful about the claim of, of value as opposed to price, right? Those are distinct. Those are distinct, distinct concepts. And 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 here we're just taking the market principle. Right. So ona is a market principle, but taroma doesn't have to be a market principle, right? Because right, right, you imagine cases where, right, if you have a a marketplace with a structural inequity, so that workers get paid much less than the value they add. Right. See, so, right. So if you're just framing a ona framework, but the workers get paid the market value. Of their goods, you can't have ONOA. Right? ONOA can't correct that kind of that kind of structural inequity, but Tarom it might. 
right, 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 right. That's right. That's why I think it's very important to make that distinction. I should just also add that my, my wife listened to the first two shiurim and uh, got very upset with me because she thought I I should be much more my uh, my flaming liberal self on these issues <laughs> and, and say like what? How can we possibly say that it's okay and we have no big issues if somebody overpromises money to workers and they're right and they're counting on this money and then they don't get paid? I think that's a fair point. Right, that the you know, the Gemara's opening cases are right, not the not the okay that we're dealing with. The opening three okitas are somebody said you'll get paid four dollars and you go through life happy, thinking you'll get paid four dollars. Now you can buy Bart his birthday present, whatever it is, right? That, Hom that, that Homer's waiting on when he works as uh, I think as a rent a clause or something like that, right? In in the Simpsons, and then at the end, right, if you've done this job, right, you've done this job, you end up not having the money you counted on, right? So that is, that's humiliating. How can that be? That's a fair. I think I should put that point out also, right? That there's, there's going to be something odd in the Gemara. If at the end of the day we say that somebody did some, somebody promised somebody more money than they ended up, which made them work the entire day with different expectations, and the end, right? We just pull the football away, and there's no consequence of that. So, so I does put that mean that Ah, right. So we could say, right? Maybe, maybe we reject all of those. That's why, right? So I put in the one line. In the in the bottom of the ritzvah, right, uh, the last line of the ritzvah, which is the cholhani dine damrinam bishmaitin hilchasaninim, right. But maybe not everyone agrees with the ritzvah, right. As part of the thing we have to figure out is right is whether the structure of the sugya is that all the outcomes all the outcomes work and are independently fine, right. Or do we right or do we say you know when we shift the okimta, that means we reject all the previous okimtas. It's structural, right. So then right so right so my wife would like to read the sugya that way. Right, that we reject all the all the overpromise okimtas because in the end, overpromising how can that be? How can you just let people get away with overpromising? Um, right, they promise they, they promise they should have to pay. There's a thing, right? There's a, there's a real dignity loss. Okay, so I just put that out there, and uh, my home my home will be happier. And since I believe, since I agree with it anyway, right? I was probably I was probably um, excessively. Uh, we had the first year, right? So I wanted to set it up that you know to that um, if we end up with positions like that, it should come out of the Gemara. And Rishonim, as opposed to my imposing uh, my biases on you, but um, but the point is valid. <laughs> we all deal with it. Okay, thank you.